This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast, number 256, Piano. I'm Hal Hammond, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. The word piano is a truncated version of pianoforte, or forte piano. I've heard it both ways. Piano is Italian for soft. Forte is Italian for strong. Therefore, the pianoforte was an instrument capable of playing soft notes and strong notes, quiet and loud. Organs, harpsichords, and similar keyboard instruments that preceded the piano did not allow the performer to alter the volume of the music note to note. The piano was different. It combined elements of string and percussion instruments in a way unlike anything that had been heard before. But maybe I'm taking some things for granted. For those who have never peeked under the hood of a grand piano, let me enlighten you. The 88 keys on the piano are attached to 88 small hammers, which in turn are lined up to strike 88 strings. Actually, it's more strings than that. Higher notes require more strings to make the same level of sound. Anyway, each string or set of strings is tuned to a particular frequency. Long and thick strings make deeper tones. Short and thin strings make higher tones. That's the long and short of it. Pardon the expression. Because of the percussive elements of the piano, basically the harder you hit the key, the louder a tone the piano makes. That's what made the pianoforte so amazing two centuries ago, and why it's still popular today. It's not one tone fits all. The music comes in different volumes for different purposes. Pianos remind me of God in that way. We often want to pigeonhole him into a particular category. When we're in trouble, we want him to come in hard and strong, like he did at Mount Sinai. He sounds like thunder. He strikes like lightning. Our problems are addressed immediately. Our enemies are vanquished completely. That's fun. That's gratifying. And the Bible talks about that kind of God. But fair warning before you invoke that particular manifestation of the divine nature. Most of the time, when that side of God's nature shows up, it doesn't work out too well for the people in the room. Even in the good circumstances, like Mount Sinai, or like Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 1, there's a lot of falling on your face in terror. Personally, I'm a fan of the soft God, the God that pardoned Nineveh in Jonah's day, that's not willing that they should perish, to quote 2 Peter 3.9. I think that's the point of Elijah's experience in 1 Kings 19. He's ready for the God that looks like an earthquake, or a forest fire, or a wind that shatters mountains. But he needed to get to know the God of what the Christian Standard Bible calls the soft whisper. Elijah didn't need to see the overthrow of Ahab and Jezebel to know God was ruling in heaven. He didn't need to see immediate and sustained impact from the events at Mount Carmel, described in the previous chapter. God can say everything that needs to be said in a whisper. And the best part about the soft God is we see him all the time. If you want to be impressed with the power of God during a tornado or a hurricane, by all means do so. But you can get the same message of power and greatness by watching a sunrise every morning and a sunset every night, by watching children at play, by growing old with the one you love and with whom you share a faith. That's God too. And the soft God is every bit as magnificent, every bit as worthy of praise as the loud God. So accept and praise whatever version of God may show up today. And if he's louder or softer than you expected or than you would have preferred, Remember how much wiser he is than you, and give thanks that you're getting the version he saw you standing in need of. This is what I've been reading. 
If you were here back in August, you may remember I went with a different book on the Paris episode, Chopin in Paris by Ted Sulk. Since Chopin was the greatest pianist of his era, I suppose I could have swapped those two books. But as the French would say, c'est la vie. I found Carhartt's book quite entertaining once I figured out what it was. He tells how he wandered into a shop called Les Forges Pianos on a whim, remembering an earlier time in his life when the piano was a passion for him. He inquired about used pianos that might be for sale in the area, and the proprietor told him to check back from time to time that a connection might be made somehow. Several subsequent trips yielded the same response. Then one day he happened to find the door to the back room open and saw the store was actually jam-packed with used pianos. Turns out Parisians just don't open up to any American who crosses their path waving a handful of francs. Perhaps, the owner said begrudgingly, he might be willing to sell Thad a piano if he could come up with a recommendation from a current customer. The American in me, as you might expect, was horribly offended at this point on behalf of Thad and the rest of us Americans. But Thad had a choice. Remain resentful and ride off on his high horse without piano, or gradually worm his way into this culture about which he knew very little, on their terms, and perhaps find a piano in time. He chose the second, of course. The first would have made for a much shorter and much less interesting book. And he did get a piano in the end. But more than that, he got some friends. He was introduced into corners of Paris society he never would have seen otherwise. He learned more about pianos than he knew was there to be learned, like how modern pianos are much louder than those of previous centuries, or how the so-called traditional black lacquer look is relatively new, or how pianos change in tone with age, like violins and age better when they are played regularly than when they are allowed to sit idle. I found myself thinking about the struggles I've had over the years getting people to open up to me. The way I look at it, we're sharing a pew, or a neighborhood, or just a planet. I'm not the biggest social butterfly, but I would rather make friends than revel in my isolation. And clearly some of the people in my orbit feel exactly the opposite. And I tend to bow up a bit when I sense that. I'm a nice guy. I have things to offer. If they don't get that, it's their loss. But Thad Carhart has convinced me that sometimes it's best just to accept the world on its terms. If it takes a year or two to worm my way into the confidences of my neighbors, I'll take a year or two. If the family on the next pew has a teenager who's the world's worst clarinet player, I'll go to some terrible concerts. It's part of imitating Paul as he imitated Jesus. Paul was all things to all people, 1 Corinthians 9.22. He didn't require all people or any people to meet him where he was. He met them where they were. I have a hunch this approach will yield unexpected dividends for you in the same way it did for Tad Carhart. Maybe you'll find out you really like Lebanese food, or high school baseball, or even, gasp, French people. If you're growing up as a person yourself, your willingness to be flexible is already worth the effort. And if it opens a door for a soul to come to Jesus, that makes it just that much better. This is what I've been hearing. The piece playing here is the fugue from Beethoven's Hammerklavier Sonata. I alluded to the Hammerklavier in the Beethoven episode a couple of weeks ago. It's widely considered to be the hardest piece of piano music that had ever been written at the time. And written by a deaf person. Again, I must repeat that. I can't get over that. I want to talk about sonatas for a bit here, but first, definitions. I'll make this as quick and painless as possible. 
piano music comes in a variety of forms. Perhaps the simplest piece is a bagatelle. Short, unpretentious, perfect for piano recitals. Beethoven's Furelise is a bagatelle. On the other end of the complication spectrum is the piano concerto, which is a multi-movement piece for piano accompanied by an entire orchestra. If you've ever seen a woman in a ball gown playing piano with a hundred men and women dressed in formal wear behind her, she was likely playing a concerto. And in the middle is a sonata. Just the piano, but every bit as long and involved as the concerto. Sonatas take performance to a whole other level. You can play a bagatelle by yourself and impress all the non-musicians out there, but you know you could do a lot better. You can play a really tough concerto, but you have a whole orchestra behind you, and you're not playing at all part of the time. Sonatas are different. It's just you and your instrument on an island. You can blame any mistakes on the instrument if you want, but no one's going to buy that. You're accountable. You and you alone. Do you ever feel like that? Like you're a piano player up on stage, trying to hold yourself to a near impossible standard with dozens of potential critics out there in the audience just waiting for you to hit a clunker? Maybe you're one of the small handful that finds the best version of themselves in that moment. More likely, you're one of those people who would never even consider setting foot on the stage in the first place. You're a one-talent person in the world of two- and five-talent people. What's the point of even trying? I think we need to reevaluate our view of performance in God's concert theater. When you submit to the standard of a house full of people, you doom yourself to failure. After all, every person has a different standard. How could you possibly meet all of them? If you're humble enough for one group, you won't be bold enough for another group. You talk too simply for some, you talk too complicatedly for others. You think you're ready with your rendition of the Hammerklavier. But most of the houses indifferent at best toward Beethoven. Plenty of them don't even like piano music. All you can do in God's service, as with anything else, is your best. The critics, the haters, the hecklers. I wish I could say they'll just go away. But they won't. At least not all of them. Remember, though, your true audience is family. And as far as your brothers and sisters in Christ are concerned, you're already a success. Yes, perhaps that's a bit rose-colored glasses-ish of me, but in most cases, it's at least partly true. And in the end, the actual audience is your Heavenly Father, and you became His favorite pianist the moment you were born to Him through Jesus Christ. He is the one who will judge you on that day by the Gospel, Romans 2.16, and He's the one rendering the only important judgment now. God has already accepted your works, we read in Ecclesiastes 9.7. Who cares if someone else doesn't? So everything you do in the name of Jesus, Colossians 3.17, do it with toes tapping and fingers dancing. The music you're making is sweet in the ears of your father. This is what I've been playing. Way back before Tom Hanks had even won a single Academy Award, let alone two, he played the part of a 12-year-old child in a film called big. He was in his 30s at the time, which, if you haven't heard of the movie, no doubt makes you question that casting decision. But, one, Tom Hanks is perfectly capable of playing a person of any age, and Big proved that. And two, the 12-year-old child he was playing had wished to be Big on the Zoltar machine at the local fairgrounds. The film spawned a host of age-jumping and body-switching films, most of which weren't very good or very popular. Big, though, was outstanding. And it made Tom Hanks into a bankable lead actor on his way to superstardom. 
Big did not make my list of films I wholeheartedly endorse. Check the archives for that one if you missed it. But I did enjoy the film for the most part. Perhaps the best scene is when Josh, Hanks' character, plays heart and soul on the giant piano keyboard with Robert Loggia, who plays Josh's boss. The idea is that people of any age can access their inner child, the part of ourselves that remembers how much fun life can be. Young people have trouble getting out of that mentality, frankly. Adults like me are constantly telling them to take life seriously, to learn important skills for building character, relationships, and work experience. The habits you learned in your teen years will either bless or haunt you for the rest of your life, young people out there. And I'll tell you frankly, I'd deliver every one of those lectures again to my girls if I had it to do over. At no point did I worry about keeping them from being a child. God made them children. No amount of broccoli and vacuuming was going to change that. Adults get to the place in life where they accept and even embrace broccoli and vacuuming. That's healthy and natural. The fact that we have to invent a term like adulting to describe normal grown-up behavior disturbs me mightily. And certainly there are plenty of alleged adults who do nothing but play all day. But today I want to, however briefly, address the problem on the other side of the spectrum. Adults who never act like children at all. I want to suggest, and I'm treading carefully here, that that can be an overcorrection. God gave his people a day off every week. And I think that's a good policy for us today as well. It's worth noting, at least in passing, that a day off for God's people meant a day devoted in large measure to worship and prayer. The other days were generally nonstop work from sunrise to sunset. But that's not written in law, either by Moses or by Jesus. And there's plenty of precedent for godly, heaven-centered people taking some time to relax and have fun. And probably the best way of accessing your inner child is spending time, quality time, with actual children. Would I play Hi-Ho Cheerio with Tracy and Kylie? Absolutely not. I'd rather watch paint dry. Would I play with a four-year-old? All day long, and count myself blessed to have the opportunity. I have great pity in my heart, and maybe some legitimate concern for people who don't like spending time with children. Obviously, it's important for the children to have adults to model themselves after. But it's important for the adults, too. They need to remember what it's like to live joyfully in the moment, to see life as more than a series of responsibilities. Life is a blessing from God. If it isn't bringing a smile to your face, at least from time to time, there's a problem. And I don't mean a problem with your life. I mean a problem with your heart. After all, we're commanded in Philippians 4.4 to rejoice in the Lord always. If that requires you to take an hour off of work and go jump on a giant piano keyboard, maybe that's an hour well spent. Get your work done first, obviously. Do it well. Pat yourself on the back. But afterward, take some time to unwind. Don't be afraid to act like a kid. You were one once, and part of you still is. You shouldn't let the child inside plan your retirement. But letting him plan your Friday night might be just the thing you need. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. 
Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.